morning, welcome to Rising. It is Tuesday and we've got a great show for you all today. Number of fascinating guests, fascinating topics, and we are just thrilled to be here, aren't we? We are, as always, Robbie. As always. <laughs> all right, let's get right to it. Well, it seems a Biden impeachment effort is moving full steam ahead. House Speaker McCarthy has endorsed an impeachment inquiry into the president, telling GOP lawmakers last night it's the logical next step an oversight leader's investigation into the president's alleged pay-for-play influence peddling scheme. The speaker is expected to go public with this endorsement as soon as this week. Mm. Well, GOP lawmaker Nancy Mace butted heads with Caitlin Collins over the inquiry on CNN last night. Let's take a look. The people deserve the truth and nothing but, but the isn't truth. it supposed to be the evidence that leads you to pursue impeachment and impeachment inquiry? Well, that's what the inquiry is for. But is there's to already get more evidence. investigations. I think that's right. where people are confused because it's not like but there's we don't no have Joe. We happening. don't have Joe Biden's bank records yet. And so one way to do that, my understanding, would be through an impeachment inquiry. So if that's what get us gets us those bank records, then I'm going to support it. If Republicans in the Senate, however, are less keen on opening the impeachment can of worms. Per reporting in The Hill, Republicans are skeptical that McCarthy could even muster enough votes in the House to pass an article of impeachment and warn it would be quickly dismissed if it even got to the Senate, possibly without going to a full trial. The American people are split on party lines when it comes to a Biden impeachment, per a new poll. However, all in all, 56% of registered voters think such an impeachment inquiry into Biden would be a partisan political stunt. Mm. The White House has pushed back vehemently against allegations of wrongdoing. Spokesperson Ian Sams wrote on Twitter this morning, quote, opening an impeachment inquiry despite zero evidence of wrongdoing by the president is simply red meat for the extreme right wing so they can keep baselessly attacking him. All right, what do you make of the politics of this first and foremost? It does seem like it's 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 split, it's close-ish, but the majority of Americans think this would be a political stunt. Caitlin Collins does seem to be raising an interesting question of whether or not the inquiry is following the evidence or if this is a kind of a wild goose chase looking for evidence that will justify the inquiry in retrospect. Um, and it seems like even Republicans, many Republicans in the House, aren't necessarily on board. Sure. You know, let's be transparent and honest with ourselves. At this point, there is not enough evidence for an impeachment of Joe Biden. I mm. think that's just basically facts. That doesn't mean there's there's no wrongdoing. It just means enough evidence hasn't been assembled. It is certainly the case that the reality of the Hunter Biden situation is a lot more complicated and fraught than I think anybody thought, or certainly than the mainstream media conceded um, at the get-go when the laptop story was coming out. And I do think we need to look much more seriously at any financial connections. Um, Joe Biden might have had there, you know, we have to further investigate um, his, his claims that he had nothing to do with Hunter Biden's business and how well that stands up. Um, you know, that said, uh, Republicans got to be, so Republicans do need to pursue that because many of these House Republicans ran on and won representation in Congress by, by telling prime, Republican primary voters that they are going to fully investigate this. But the incentives for House members and Senate members are different because House members often are running in very safe districts where they're really just, the whole election is convincing the Republican primary electorate that you know, you're gonna do what they want. Yeah. Whereas this person in the Senate is, is representative of you know, an entire state of a lot of a, of, of a much more ideologically and actually partisan mixed coalition. So it does, it's not surprising that they don't wanna touch this as much. Yeah, I mean, I, I also do think politicians have figured out 
ways to throw meat at the base in the district without needing there to be an actual impeachment inquiry. If there is a vote in the House, those people from districts where they think it will help them politically to say that they tried to fight and impeach Joe Biden can vote for an impeachment and go back home and tell their constituents that that's what they wanted to do, but oh well, they were hamstrung by Democrats and a couple of turncoat Republicans in the House, and that'll be what it is. So I don't, I don't know that that's um, that should be such the barrier for those people who uh, want to go ahead with impeachment in terms of the, the tense conflict uh, between McCarthy and some of the more conservative members of the House. I do wonder, though, if it is a a a kind of a, an apotheosis of some of the bad political choices that have been made by Republicans, or I shouldn't characterize them as bad off the bat, but this is the question. Was it a good choice to focus so much on criminalizing Biden, perhaps in retribution for the way that Donald Trump has been criminalized, to focus on some of these cultural issues like wokeness that have now almost entirely disappeared from public discourse, it, weirdly, given that we're in the middle of a, a, a heated Republican primary. Even those candidates that have tried to make wokeness their their signature agenda item, whether it's Vivek Ramaswamy writing the book Woke Inc., or obviously Ron DeSantis, those issues seem not to be playing as well anymore. And it does seem to be an ongoing conversation about how you can position yourself vis-a-vis -vis Trump as someone who's inheriting his legacy. And, and it does seem like a lot of this Hunter Biden stuff is going the way of wokeness. Is that premature? Uh, I think that might be premature. I mean, I think it's premature to write off wokeness as a motivating issue as well. I mean, maybe, but, you know, if you look at polls Who's of— it working for? Well, if you look at polls of all of the Republican candidates against Biden, they're, they're even or a point up or, or more in Nikki Haley's case. Well, right? against most Biden, point, yeah. sure, but they have to get out of the primary first. Well, they're all talking about wokeness. I mean, I, I think it's getting a little and I think overly that, analytic to say, like, well, this person is emphasizing wokeness more and is not doing well. I mean, you're probably bringing up, like, the Disney DeSantis example. Well, but, yes. I, I mean, but, all of those things seem to not have gotten much traction or airtime. I mean, look who came out ahead in the debate. Vivek Ramaswamy got the most media attention mm -hmm. after after the debate, and it seemed like part of that was because so many people were taking hits at him, uh, so he got more airtime and was able to talk more. Part of that was because he was willing to take the Trump anti-establishment foreign policy line that no one else was willing to take. Sure. But the other story out of the debate was that Nikki Haley had the most in terms of raw gains in polls and points. And it had very favorable recommendations. She's not uh, exactly smoke over there. That's my point. That's exactly my point. No, no, I, I mean, seem... she's, she is very anti-woke, and she... Well, no. I, I think that the reason that she, she obviously was applauded out of the debate for taking a more moderate and in line with the American public view on abortion. And uh, a lot of the... I, I was just watching a, um, a, a panel assembled to assess the debate performance, and people were pointing to the fact that they found her to have credibility and integrity for being willing to criticize her own party. As someone on the left, I, I feel that way about Democrats who are occasionally I mean, I willing think... to say, thing, say, say true things about Democrats. Sure. I, I don't think... Uh, I mean, obviously, wokeness is a really hard and weird thing to define. I don't typically think, except in like the broadest terms, if we're just if wokeness is just social or anti wokeness is just social conservatism. I don't think a lot of people include abortion necessarily as among the woke issues. Um, it's more about gender and race. I'm and not saying DEI that gender is. A, I'm not saying it is a, or isn't a woke issue. I'm saying that she hasn't. She spent as much time on the debate stage or elsewhere hammering home that she's running for president to 
prevent, to, to end trans kids or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I do think that what has happened in the context of the primary is that people have started to focus on policy issues more than they have some of these cultural issues. And that has been to the detriment of some of the people who've decided to frame them, their whole agenda entirely around not policy. And I do wonder, again, whether this uh, impeachment stuff is ultimately going to have much traction. And if part of the fact, the, the part of the reason, rather, that so many Republicans don't seem to be that enthusiastic about impeaching Joe Biden is one, a lack of evidence. Remember, we did have a Donald Trump Justice Department for four years champing at the bit to do exactly this kind of investigation and it came up with the exact level of low evidence that we have today. And two, the fact that it's just a political non-starter compared to some of the other things that are motivating What's the public. What's a political non-starter? Talking about these non-policy related issues like wokeness and like impeaching the president. Well, I, I mean, I think I mean, those are two very different things. There are parts of wokeness that don't have an obvious policy component, I agree. And I think the Republican Party has struggled with that a little bit, that beyond people's kind of visceral um, disagreement with, like, you know, not having a, or having a, not having a women's sports team or having uh, women have to uh, compete with people who might have biological advantages who are still being characterized as women, right, what, what does the federal government do about that? Um, you know, maybe not that much. Although it's not, it's not nothing, to be fair. You keep describing this as like a non-policy issue. I mean, Title IX and the Education Department and federal funding for schools absolutely does have a, like a significant policy component. It's a little bit granular, a little bit detailed. And I'm not I, sure it's the I, most important thing yeah. for them to be talking about on the debate that's, stage, that's but there the are policies. That's the point, that it's not the most, the public seems nothing. Well, they, they could the do a better job if they want to, they should connect wokeness to the actual policies of, uh, beginning with the Obama administration and Title IX related guidance to gender in schools and speak credibly about that. And I, I think it, it probably, these probably would be winning issues. Look, as someone who is not rooting for a Republican candidate to be in the White House, I hope they follow that advice because I don't think it's going to work out very well for them. Well, we'll see. More rising right after this. The latest person to challenge Elon Musk? Well, it's Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat. The former 2020 presidential nominee is cracking down on the CEO of X, formerly known as Twitter, demanding a probe of Elon Musk and his company SpaceX after he did acknowledge that he blocked Ukraine from, quote, extending the private Starlink satellite network for an attack on Russia's warships. That's according to Bloomberg. Uh, Elizabeth Warren said yesterday on Capitol Hill Congress needs to investigate what's happening here and whether we have adequate tools to make sure foreign policy conducted by the government and not by one billionaire. Yesterday on Rising, we showed a portion of the exchange on this matter between CNN's Jake Tapper and Secretary of State Antony Blinken and whether there should be repercussions for Elon Musk's alleged actions. Let's take another look at that. Are you concerned that Musk is apparently conducting his own diplomatic outreach to the Russian government? Really, n none of this concerns you? Jake, I can't speak to uh, conversations that may or may not have happened. I don't know. Um, I'm focused on the fact that the technology itself, Starlink, has been really important to the Ukrainians. Musk is expected to be among the, quote, technology industry chiefs to attend a closed-door summit with senators at the Capitol on Wednesday. Elon Musk expressed his support for the United States yesterday, writing on X, I am a citizen of the United States and have only that passport. No matter what happens, I will fight for and die in America. 
The United States Congress has not declared war on Russia. If anyone is treasonous, it is those who call me such. Please tell them that very clearly. So I do think there is a hypocrisy here that Elon Musk is sort of pointing out that is fair, which is that um, Elizabeth Warren is, you know, like how do, does Elon Musk, is Elon Musk in charge of our foreign policy? It should be our government in charge of our foreign policy. Well, yes, it should be our government in charge of our foreign policy. In fact, it's Congress that is supposed to be in charge of our foreign policy, not the president. And to Elon Musk's point, we have not declared on Russia, no, declared war on Russia, nor should we. Uh, which is why there's a lot of this confusion here, and why he's in the position of, I think, raising some very reasonable um, uh, concerns about whether. Uh, whether allowing or participating in this strike on the Russian Navy would have been a good idea or would have been escalatory or getting the, the U.S. or just the rest of the world involved in World War III and whether that would have been a good thing. So I don't think we should go to war with Russia. I don't think that we should be escalating. But that doesn't really get to the bottom of the question of whether or not an individual should have the power to make the decision one way or the other, as opposed to a government. I think it's perfectly fair to say there has not been congressional authority to take some of the actions that have been taken. That's true. But just because Congress isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing in a democratic sense doesn't mean that I feel good about saying that the rule should just be any, any billionaire gets to decide foreign policy also. The problem is that both of those things are undemocratic. And I, and I wonder what you think about this idea. It seems to be in the context, at least, of Hunter Biden. There's an appetite for saying, well, let's just do a probe, let's investigate, let's do an impeachment inquiry and see if there's anything there that we should be concerned about. Is it legitimate for Elizabeth Warren to be saying the same thing with Elon Musk? Okay, let's just, just do a probe, see if there's anything to worry about, and let's see if the United States needs to take different kinds of actions in terms of the technology that it relies on so it's not put in the position again of having to rely on a, you know, a, a capricious individual for its strategic choices overseas? Uh, no. Elon Musk is a private citizen, and I don't think he should be investigated such unless there's— Isn't Hunter Biden? Yes, but I don't want—and I don't care to investigate Hunter Biden's, you know, personal, non-political related conduct. We're interested in—we're interested in investigation of Joe Biden and whether he somehow profited from Also, the from investigation isn't into Biden. Elon Musk. It's to SpaceX, a organization, a, a company that has— has in the past, has military contracts. It wasn't this particular Starlink uh, issue, but has had contracts, uh, defense contracts with well, the United States. Well, they can look at their contracts with SpaceX. That's fine if we have I mean, that's, that's the question of whether or not there should be a probe into the relationship there. Yeah, but that's not what she's mad about. She's mad about that Elon Musk would dare decide not to participate in a, Ukra in a Ukrainian military operation, uh, that, which I think fine. is up to him. I, Again, I don't share her politics. Elizabeth Warren voted for uh, Donald Trump's enormous military budget increase back in 2017. She's never seen a military budget increase She's she very hawkish. doesn't like, just like most of the Republican Party and most of the Democratic Party. But that's the hypocrisy here, it seems to me, is that there seems to be an ample appetite for just doing investigation to see if there's a there there on um, the right with respect to Hunter Biden's alleged pay-for-play scheme and not any appetite for this. I don't support politics of either side, but I'm, I'm struggling to figure out why, if there's nothing, if there's no problem here, the same people who have an appetite for just doing an investigation to affirm that reality on one side of the aisle don't seem to have an interest in doing so here. Because 
the gov I, I'm, I want the government to look into wrongdoing by other government officials. But again, fine, we can look into the, the contracts with SpaceX. But st specifically to the extent everyone seems very mad at Elon, or you know, to the extent to calling him treasonous because he wasn't going to participate in this Ukrainian military operation. And I don't think that's, I don't really think that's fair because it does seem like avoiding World War III is a noble goal. Um, I think, honestly, I think Elon's opinions on what should be going on between Ukraine and Russia noble? are probably closer to the average Americans but, than our but governments. Robbie, what if the goal weren't noble? What if Bill Gates, another very rich man, uh, decides that he does think that we should be going to war with Russia, that um, he's concerned that our ally Germany is reluctant to uh, go along with us, and that therefore he wants to use his billions of dollars to help, uh, let's say, hypothetically, uh, blow up a pipeline that brings natural gas from Russia to Germany. If, in that obviously fake uh, scenario that I've just brought up, just because you disagree with Bill Gates, would you then have concern that there's a billionaire that's doing foreign policy? I mean, do, can, I mean you, can you abstract yourself? No, I, I, no I, that's a much yourself? better arrangement. If, if people want to, wealthy people want to spend their money to help the Ukrainian cause rather than taxpayer dollars, that's a win. That's a win. -win. I mean, that, that would be a crime. It would be illegal what Bill Gates would have to done in that scenario. Pipeline. Yeah. Because yeah, it's not, doesn't belong to Right. Russia it or, was illegal. Right. Whoever blew up the pipeline, it was both illegal and one of the biggest environmental catastrophes of all time. But I... I, I, I'm struggling with this because I don't understand, like, you seem to have—and this bleeds over into other contexts—we can only organize our society in the ways that are available to us to organize our society. And we have decided, as you've pointed out, that we should have a democratic process when deciding especially on big things like going to war. It is bad that Congress has jumped over that authority so many times in American history and figured out ways to not technically declare war so they don't have to technically get the public support for what they do overseas. Usually in those conversations, it's about wanting to have more democracy in that process. And I don't understand why there seems to be a laissez-faire attitude about having a patently undemocratic process with respect to rogue billionaires doing foreign policy, even if, in this particular instance, we happen to agree with what this billionaire has done. I mean, it's their money, not mine. I don't, my objection is I don't want to fund the, I, I, I'm unwilling to be forced to fund this effort. But if you want to donate, if you want to donate money to the Ukrainians or, or the Russians or whoever, that's your business. Um, it's not so my we're, business. So we're just we're careening into a world where benevolent and benevolent billionaires fight it out for the fate of humanity and we all just sit back and watch. Bill Gates releases his mosquitoes and we world, get mad about it. Instead of a world where the U.S. government confiscates our wealth and then uses it to launch wars without any Wait, oversight who, or accountability. Do you think that I'm arguing that I think that we, the United States should confiscate well, our just, wealth? You're describing just, some theoretical dystopia when we already live in a dystopia and it's the one the government voiced it on. No, we're living in a dystopia where rogue billionaires are deciding foreign policy. That's the subject of this I mean, we're segment. We're living in a world where um, rogue governments are doing foreign policy. Yeah, and I, w I would like to rein that in. And I have a lot of arguments and policy proposals for exactly how to do that in the same way that I think it's worth discussing how to rein uh, 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 the billionaires in. I don't think just saying, oh, well, that's the way it is. Let's just throw Mothra at, uh, at King Kong is the way to do it, or Godzilla is the way to do it. I don't know. It just it seems very nihilistic so what, and so very short-sighted. So Ukraine shouldn't beseech 
Elon Musk for help. No, I, and I didn't. Elon I, Musk should get is to decide whether he helps Elon, them or Elon not. Can do whatever he, uh, right. Ukraine, Ukraine can, can do whatever, whatever they want, want and Elon Musk should do no, but, whatever but he wants. No, but America has to make a decision about whether it wants to be reliant on a unaccountable billionaire's technology to do what it wants to do from a foreign policy perspective. That's a big, that's a separate yeah. issue from, it's not about forcing Elon Musk to do X, Y, and Z. It's about America right. realizing that it's privatized aspects of its defense. Whether or not you private, think, I mean, it's just, it's Elon's company. He invented the technology. Right. So We're Ameri going to conscript him into working for our U.S. military? Literally no, Robbie. Literally, I'm not arguing that. Okay. The question is whether or not the United States needs to look at what it's doing and its reliance on people like Elon Musk so it doesn't have to be in the situation. That's what they, that's the probe. That's what they want to look, they should need to look into. Are, are you arguing that the United States should just continue to be reliant on capricious billionaire technology? What I mean, if capricious billionaire technology? I mean, it's a great tech. It's a technology that provides internet and has provided internet to much of Ukraine for free for like okay. capricious. It's a it's a human good. It's it's. Robbie, do you really think I'm art? What I meant by that was that the technology is capricious and not that Elon Musk's choice to extend that technology is capricious. Well, I mean, he's the he's the he Just built like the company that created it. All right, you you've made your stance clear. We'll have a rising for you right after this. President Biden spoke in remembrance of the thousands of lives lost on 9-11 yesterday. Let's listen in. Ground Zero in New York. And I remember standing there the next day and looking at the building. I felt like I was looking through the gates of hell. It looked so devastating because the way you could away from where you could stand. There's just one problem, according to RNC research. Biden was in Washington, D.C. on September 12, 2001, for a Senate session. Now, this apparent gaffe comes as Biden's numbers in recent polls are cratering. Wall Street Journal surveys show 73% of voters say Biden is too old to run, while 47% of voters say former President Donald Trump also too old to run. In a CNN poll, which we covered here on Rising last week, 67% of Democrats wish they had an alternative to Biden. But MSNBC's Mehdi Hassan says Democrats shouldn't worry about these statistics. Let's look. We need to calm the hell down. Just hold on. With more than 400 days to go, losing your marbles over a couple of meh polls isn't good for your health and isn't at all justified. Isn't Everything's fine. Yeah. Nothing to see here. <laughs> I don't know that I would evoke the notion of it not being good for your health when we're having a conversation about whether or not Joe Biden is fit for office from a physical and mental yeah. cognitive perspective. He's doing self-therapy there because he it, doesn't want to have to worry. Exactly. It's like, are, who are you trying to convince? Your yeah, audience yeah, or yeah. yourself? Everything's fine. He's the, this is fine, dog. percent. <laughs> <laughs> this is fine. hundred percent. And look, I have seen this level of coping all over the internet. You know, Mehdi Hassan is one of the more left-leaning of the mainstream hosts. It's, it's disappointing so. to see it for him. Look, the, the bar is low, but in terms of who they let speak to genuine populist politics on on cable news, they've got Mehdi. They put him over on Peacock, so even that is a, is a little bit of a keep, mm -hmm. keeping him quarantined from the main uh, blob neoliberal establishment um, cohort over at MSNBC. But I've seen other people who were 
Bernie surrogates, supporters of progressive politics over the years, supporters of uh, insurgent campaigns. I saw Robert Reich, who has been a left kind of economic advice figure, uh, come out with an, an article in The Guardian, I believe, just today, talking about how Cornell West is a spoiler and that everyone has to keep their eyes on the prize. I mean, and, and obviously, yesterday, we talked about my debate um, with Crystal and Kyle, who have both been, in the past, uh, very supportive of third-party efforts and of insurgent campaigns and not voting for the status quo. Uh, Kyle Kalinske voted Green Party uh, in the last election cycle. But something seems to have shifted with people. I saw Young Turks, even, another left outlet, uh, one of the largest there is, uh, do a segment where both of their main hosts were uh, making the case for all of Biden's accomplishments, even though there, I think, is more, some more flexibility and openness there to some of these alternative uh, candidates that are running. And I, I got to ask, what is going on? What is in the water where people seem to not really want to take on the reality that the public is frustrated with having these political choices? Why are they saying, there's nothing to see here, look at all the wonderful things Biden has done, don't pay attention to the fact that he is getting obvious facts right. wrong about his life. He's been a serial fabulist even before he got older. And instead of taking this opportunity 400 days out to try to find someone else. It's like they're, yeah, they're not willing to do that and that's not going to happen. But it, they're trying to, they've made a vision board, which is Biden being president again. And they're trying to <laughs> manifest it into existence. I mean, I think it betrays genuine, I mean, it doesn't make sense that you wouldn't pursue, you wouldn't consider other candidates. Like they're very worried, I think, about Biden being reelected. I th honestly, I, th I think there's more worry about Biden being reelected than there was about Biden winning last time in the first place. Um, there's more because if he was ahead in the polls, you know, if he was six points ahead right. of the of every Republican right. um, candidate, I don't honestly, I don't think there would be as much fretting about Cornell West yeah. or any anything or primary challenge or anything else. It's because right now it's it's already dead even. Right. It's, and it's usually it gets closer as the election as we head down to actual voting day in November, the 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 parties get get real close. It's already close. Yeah. And that is a worrying sign. And then you have things like, you know, and he's only going to older between now and the election and then in the possible second term. So things like, you know, what led this segment where, where again, he just casually suggests that he was, you know, watching, watching the, the wreckage day, uh, day it's after. It's such an unforced it's error, not true. too. It's the I way mean, he exaggerated, you know, he, he's come to suggest sometimes that Bo Biden, um, uh, a death was related to, um, what would he, he said it was in Iraq? Oh, yes, that, that it was like a military death. Right, it was not. It was... Right. Uh, it, he freed Nelson Mandela or, you know, there, there are these crazy. Yeah. Oh, the Mandela one is good. Is a is a good one. But I mean, and political figures are always, you know, Hillary Clinton claimed her what her chopper when she visited. I can't remember if it was Iraq or Afghanistan yeah. was like nearly and came under fire. Right. It didn't. You know, this is everyone likes to tell stories that are that puts puts them in harm's The politician loves the yeah. I got my hands dirty and I went in there and we yeah. almost had to shoot our way out. Yeah. It's nonsense. Uh, jo not Joe, Joe Biden has repeatedly regaled voters with a tale about himself being arrested 30 years ago in South Africa while trying to see Nelson Mandela. It just didn't happen. It plainly didn't happen. So th this is this I mean, is the he's question. A plate, he's a plate that, that, that doomed yes. his campaign in what in 1988, 92. Um, when he plagiarized yeah. uh, a British political figure's speech, that was what most people knew, knew Joe Biden for. If yeah. you knew who Joe Biden was in the 90s and early aughts. So, so this this is the question. I'm having flashbacks to 2016, a time during which legitimate criticisms of Hillary Clinton and her record and the things that she's defended over the years alongside Bill Clinton 
were all characterized as bad faith smears against her because she's a woman. There was never at any point, despite polls that were actually close back then, people forget this. There was, I think, one or two weeks where Hillary Clinton got, you know, 10 points ahead of yeah. Donald Trump. And those were the weeks following the Access Hollywood yes. scandal. And it immediately snapped back to being a tight race. She was, for the bulk of that contest, within the um, margin of error. As confident as people were, as confident as the pod save bros were announcing mm -hmm. that she was going to win, it was never clear cut. And this does seem like a rehash of that. And her polling because, was wor even worse in the Midwest states. She ended up losing. Yeah, yeah. And like not, the national poll number doesn't even matter. Yeah. And not just because the polls are closed, but because there's a similar denial uh, where people's critiques are only being framed as bad faith and therefore beneath being responded to by the Democratic Party. I think there's a world where Hillary Clinton has started to address some of the concerns. I was wrong about the crime bill. Um, I, I, you know, shouldn't have said uh, my abuela's sister Hillary some of the cringe identity politics stuff that she had said. Um, there, there, there was an opportunity for her to grow and change and show that she was responsive to the people. Some of the things that she said about Bernie Sanders that alienated his movement. Uh, she could have moved to the left on some of those issues. She chose, and her camp chose to say, any criticism of me is sexism. The emails. Every criticism of me is sexism. But that didn't work on the voters, and the voters chose just to not come out and vote for her because she behaved with such contempt mm -hmm. toward the people she wanted to vote for her. And Joe Biden in the age feels like very much the same scenario. Yeah, there was a Frank Bruni column. He's a New York Times columnist. I saw yesterday the headline was like, don't worry, you know, the, Joe Biden's age. Well, Donald Trump is old. They're and like Donald Trump is old, it. but it doesn't. It's it, not it, the age. Right. It's, it's, the, not, it's, it's how you age are. Suggests. Yeah. Yes. It's your cognitive fitness. I'm sorry. Say what you want about Why Donald are we, Trump. Oh, here it is. Opinion. Why are we so obsessed with Biden's age? That's the that's the headline. If you're looking at it in Google or maybe on the homepage. And then when you click on it, the headline is just Trump is really old, too. It's it's apples and oranges. It, it, it's delusional. I, in fact, the the Monday I think it was yesterday's, um, the latest Pod Save America, they were wrestling with this question. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one of those, I think it was Tommy Vitor who was speaking, when they brought up this question, he was like, well, yeah, I mean, chronologically, it's the same. And it's not that the age isn't relevant, but the press should be covering Trump's age, too. And then it would even out. And then to his credit, John Favreau was like, well, I don't think it's just about age. Right? There's something a little bit more to it than that. Yeah. But there was a complete and total unwillingness yeah. to do anything about it. In this column, Frank Bruni tries to like draw an equivalency between Biden's gaffes and his yeah. disorientation and you know not knowing where he is, with you know the kind of some sometimes rambling tangent type things um, Trump will bring up in conversations, um, uh, like um, so he's quoting Trump here. We lost in some. Email, some interview with Tucker, oh, with the interview with Tucker yeah. Carlson, talking about the Panama Canal. We yeah. lost 35,000 people to the mosquito, malaria. We lost 35,000 people, vicious. They had to build nets. So one of the true great wonders of the world. Look, it was a wild one of the interview. nine wonders. No, it was one of the seven. Uh, you could make nine <laughs> wonders. Like, it's just not the same. And, and nobody thinks it's the same. So for a couple <laughs> reasons. Well, it, so it was a wild interview filled with non sequiturs. But also, one, it's completely aligned with who Trump has always been. Yes. Uh, the other 9-11 gaffe news of yesterday were, was that people were replaying uh, Donald Trump's remarks on the day. 
And he said some typical like Trumpism. It was a, it wasn't it was a very high building, lots of high buildings in New York. Yeah. You know, something that was tone deaf yeah. and not commensurate with the level of tragedy that people were experiencing. But that is literally who he's always been. So with 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 Biden, there does seem to be he's always been gaff prone, but a decrease in his like sharpness yeah. that you can witness over time, even since he was vice president. With Donald Trump. He, it's he, it's wild it's and unfocused. It's just different, and everyone knows it's different. And also, so. he's making. And Donald Trump is often making jokes, like he's kind yeah. of being, perhaps inappropriately, as in the 9/11 scenario, but like clearly a, a, right. having a grasp of his humor and what he's doing. Trump with is his often words. vague and often brings in yeah tangents that are. He'll be vague and then he'll be so hyper specific. It's not even really what like what the question yeah. was. That's always been the way he talks. Biden is giving the impression increasingly over time, as you just said, that he might at some points not know exactly where he is he or what's the program. He has to get played off the stage with music like it's the Oscars. Yeah. And just why he just wandered off the stage the other day at that uh, that event here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the White House is ripping the media for fixating on President Biden's age amid his Asia trip, according to Hill reporting. White House Deputy Communications Director Herbie Ziskind posted a copy of President Biden's packed schedule yesterday on Twitter, laying out his day in Vietnam. Mm. I guess the density of that schedule is supposed to indicate that he is really fit and rigorous and can get through it all. But He was, however, asking at what time can he take a nap or go back to bed. Go back to, and, and at the end of the day, if you're at this point blaming the liberal media, which is participating in all of this, right? It's not just conservatives. Everyone is talking about this. Majorities of Democrats feel this way about the candidate. You can you can just keep saying, believe me and not your lying eyes. Right. But are you going to end up in a Hillary Clinton situation a week before the election when you realize that people believe what they see and have discomfort about voting for the oldest president in the history of presidents to get another term? Yeah. But they don't. They don't care. They don't care. And they're they being the media, um, the DNC, Biden's advisors. They're just they're bitter. They're they're furious that the American people actually do seem to care about. Also, this. also I get. I'm like I'm not trying to be flippant about how unprecedented it would be to discard an incumbent and all the power of the incumbency Which is and why what it's a risk happen. and what a risk but. that would be. But it is also worth noting that as. Polls show that almost every single Republican could beat Biden at this point. I think there was one in a, in a field of some not very impressive people who still came out ahead of him in the polls. At, at a certain point, what are you even losing to mix it up? Well, well, sure, but no one has presented much evidence thus far that there's some other Democrat who's going to poll perform better. Well, maybe we'd see something if the Democrats yeah. allowed us to have a primary, allowed the left to have a primary. Absolutely. And there should be a primary for sure. Maybe RFK Jr. or Marianne would uh, would poll better. Yeah. I don't think Kamala Harris would poll better. <laughs> I even have some skepticism that Gavin Newsom would poll better. The kind of person they would pick, I don't think is going to poll better, yeah. but we'll see. More rising after this. Free Speech scored another victory last Friday after a federal appeals court upheld key portions of a preliminary injunction blocking government interference with social media content. In the ruling, three federal judges found the White House, FBI, and CDC violated the First Amendment by coercing or significantly encouraging platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, 
to suppress speech that federal officials viewed as unfavorable and or inaccurate. So this is another um, win for the team arguing that pressure from federal agencies on social media companies to restrict, to restrict COVID-era speech um, went too far. Um, so this is the second ruling on that. This is the higher court now. Mm -hmm. um, so we are starting to get some momentum for the idea that the administration um, really overreached, both administrations. Um, so this did, this was a little bit narrower. Um, I'm reading, reading the decision. So the, the Fifth Circuit said um, the White House the CDC, the FBI, the Surgeon General's office, um, they had all definitely engaged in overreach given all the emails they said. They, uh, the Fifth Circuit disagreed with the lower court, so overruled the lower court, on the State Department, um, NIAD, and CISA. Um, so a, a slightly more limited finding. They also then, remember the um, the, the lower court judge had issued that kind of list of here's what you're allowed to do and here's what you're not allowed to do. Sure. That I think you and I, um, you know, looked at was it's kind of inconsistent. It's, it's, it's both actually national security can probably get around this and it's a bit confusing. Um, this court just said defendants and their employees and agents shall take no action formal or informal, directly or indirectly, to coerce or significantly encourage social media companies to remove, delete, suppress, or reduce, including through altering algorithms, posted social media content containing protected free speech that includes but is not limited to compelling the platforms to act, such as by intimating that some form of punishment will follow a failure to comply with any request or supervising direct or otherwise meaningfully controlled the social media company's decision-making process. So they didn't like make a list of things yeah. that kind of you know put forth that principle. It's important to anticipate how much of the censorship is through that sort of coercion. I do wonder how traceable it's going to be knowing what we know about the the Twitter files and how much the atmosphere of um, concern trolling about uh, Russian influence and the like allow them or provoked them to make decisions that were kind of independent technically of the government to do things like censor the laptop, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story. Uh, I, I do have concerns that these social media companies are still going to take it upon themselves either because of the feeling of ex external pressure or internal politics to engage in forms of censorship. And I, I do hope that part of this is more transparency. We wouldn't know what we knew, know now about Twitter without transparency. And regrettably, um, Elon Musk shut down that important journalistic project prematurely because of his personal feelings and his personal spat with Matt Taibbi. So we never really got into any of the, the bulk of the censorship, which happens algorithmically. There was no investigation into what kind of al algorithmic filters is, are going on at Twitter. And we still know nothing about shadow banning or those kinds of things. And of course, the algorithms over at YouTube have been uh, such a central part of the conversation over the last few years. So this is a great step in the, in the right direction. And I hope that people continue to press to get these social media companies to really show us what's on their books and show us what they're doing. Because absent that, I still think they can get away with a lot. They can get away with a lot. But I mean, the encouragement, it was much more overt than I knew about or thought was possible at the time these decisions were coming down. I mean, they have more details in this um, in this decision, noting that again, this guy's come up before Rob Flaherty, who was the White House um, kind of tech liaison to the social media companies, and um, he he said, I, I've read off his emails before. This is a new one, or, or just one I haven't read before. Um, he said. Uh, 
he noted for them. In an e this is an email that a, a White House official is sending to Facebook saying, why is this post still up? How does something like this happen? And are you guys effing serious? I want an answer on what happened here, and I want it today. Uh, Facebook is not trying to solve the problem. Like, like I mean, that's... It's very easy for a judge to conclude you're having inappropriate conversations as the government with a social media company when you say, "Are you effing serious? I want an answer on what happened here today," um, and and you know, and on and on. And even on, even with the agencies that I said the, the 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 judge said were not plainly coercive, but they did they 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 clearly did overstep. Just he didn't think in a way that went so far and was so obvious that the plaintiffs could prove their case. So, um, so I don't know. You're, you're worried that you know the social media companies would do a lot of this stuff Any, anyway. Obviously, that's that not could, a criticism of the could be the holding case. at all. Sure. It's just you know I do. But we've heard from Zuckerberg and we've heard from uh, other people who seem real salty about everything that went down to me, like genuinely upset at the decisions that got arrived at, either because they let their you know most compliant employees be in charge of this or they felt actually threatened by the government or whatever it was. Um, I, maybe I'm totally naive. Um, I've definitely been accused of that before. I have a sense, and, and also maybe the, the tech CEOs, just at the end of the day, they're not paying attention to this stuff. Other people, are, it's always the wrong sort of people who are gonna handle these decisions. But it sounds to me like they have genuine regrets and would not do this the same way if it happened again. Sure, but I just don't think it's about that. I, as I've been saying since the very beginning, all the decisions that have been made by everybody, including the desire to go along with what the government wants them to do, which they don't always choose to do, right? But when they do, all of it has to do with that these are businesses and they want to make money. Elon is threatening to sue the uh, ADL because there is an understanding that public perception of what goes on on these sites can affect an advertiser's willing to be, the willingness to be there. The advertisers hold the purse. These are fundamentally advertising platforms. We are only we are we are there for the benefit of being sold ads to. So I I think that what is going to ultimately constrain Elon's behavior is what's going to constrain um, Zuckerberg's behavior, and that is having content on there that is advertiser friendly. And if that happens to align with what the the public consensus is, because that's what the government is putting out there, generally speaking whether it's about a pandemic or whether it's about hate crimes or whether it's about whatever, that's going to influence the kind of censorship decisions that are being made on, on the app. That's why, to me, the only guarantee is at least to have the transparency to know what decisions have actually been made, not just focusing on what pressure the companies have been under. Because sometimes the, the, the pressure is coming from inside the house. I mean, I, I know you keep saying that, and I... I, I don't disagree that that could be a factor, and to some extent that factor is not really prevent. I mean, at that point, then again, they are private companies, and they can choose to be as responsive or as non-responsive to yeah. business interests as they want to be, as they you know as they as they try to create a viable business model. I mean, we don't pay for Twitter. We don't. I mean, unless you have Twitter Blue, you don't pay for Facebook because their business model is not a subscription model, but one where they sell ads. But all that said, especially with the COVID stuff and with Facebook, you know, based on everything we've learned, based on everything I saw with the emails with the CDC, I don't see. Maybe, maybe we just haven't seen it yet. Maybe that's what you're saying. We don't have a, we don't have an X or Twitter or whatever it is files for, uh, for what the advertiser frustration was if they put that in words. But the COVID um, censorship or bad content moderation decisions seem to be 
not driven substantially by, I haven't seen any evidence, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I haven't seen any evidence yet that it was dr substantially or even in part driven by advertiser demands. It seems driven by, um, mostly by government demands and then somewhat the politics of the moderators at the companies. Um, now maybe on the, the hate speech or extremist speech category on, um, on Twitter, that was potentially driven by um, by advertisers. Although again, and you know, you know, I had a very bruising battle about this last week. But it's not. I, I, again, I don't see evidence that the advertisers that there's it's it's the middleman group convincing the advertisers that the speech is bad, rather than the advertisers themselves monitoring and saying, "Oh yeah, we don't want this content anymore," or "We don't want to be next to this content," which is. Which is a different. That's not. I'm not. That's not government pressure necessarily either. But I'm just not. I'm not seeing so much evidence that significant content moderation what's, decisions are being made based on what direct pressure from advertisers. What's really interesting is that there was this whole period of time that included the kind of discussion about who should lead Twitter, where there was this belief that because CEOs, these coastal people were liberal in nature, that there was like a built-in bias against the right. Mm -hmm. That was the argument with Twitter, it's the argument with Facebook, that was the argument up and down, left and right, and part of what incentivized Elon Musk to purchase the app for $44 billion. And now it feels like what you're saying is it feels implausible that any of those cultural pressures could still be in operation. And I'm a little confused by that because my- I didn't say that, no, I, I, I said that the, the politics of the employees in the content moderation positions, I think, was a factor in what went down. Yeah, so I, I got to say, yeah. my interest in this stuff is not partisan. Um, and it is, predates Elon Musk owning Twitter. It, it, it's more longstanding than that. And it has to do with the fact that as someone who is firmly anti-establishment, has been and will be until the day that I die, I'm not interested in feeling like I got a victory because one guy who happens to agree with me owns an app versus another, or that um, you know the the more mainstream preoccupations of uh, the CDC or the Biden administration or whatever it is are being pushed back upon by someone like Elon Musk. There has been a much longer history of particularly left revolutionary politics being censored in this country, and it still continues to disturb me that we have had no deeper inquiry into the kind of censorship that is happening on these apps. The Twitter files just scratched at the surface of it with some of these um, uh, intelligence agency-operated accounts that are t tweeting out in Arabic how wonderful it is that America has come and invaded my country. We got a little bit of a taste of that, but again, something like over 90% of all censorship and content moderation decisions are being made algorithmically. And there have been enough people, including a number of leftists, who have observed being um, de demonetized, deprioritized, um, limited uh, in growth and whatnot on these kinds of apps, for me to still want there to be, again, transparency, 
not just focusing on the things that we've already seen as being mechanisms of censorship. That's all I'm. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, I, I because these cultural these it doesn't have to be coming from outside of the company. And so much of it, as we saw with the Twitter files, the government would tell them to do something, and sometimes they would, and sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they would preempt what they think the government would want them to do because of the broader ethos out in the world of oh my gosh, the Russians are interfering with the election. So it's a mixed bag. And all I'm saying is that as a next step, I hope that people don't give up this fight because the only way we really know what they're doing is if we have transparency, something that we also haven't had from Twitter since the end of the Twitter files. Well, sure. But even on the topics of subjects, and I, I totally agree with you on the, the things you're spelling out being bad and, and, and significant and serious. And I, you know, I never want viewers or my readers to get the idea that censorship going on on the platforms is a was a right left issue or something it, it was very much not and, and we we know all, and, and on on many of the the subjects that were the um, most aggressive areas of censorship there's actually some agreement between some people on the left and some people on the right because they often had to do with uh, with foreign policy and with some covid stuff um, and, and and yes it was done algorithmically but still I see you know we 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 do know from the little we've seen of this in the Twitter files, but we did see some reporting on this from from Lee Fong, from other people that suggest it was like State Department funded groups, if not the State Department itself, pressuring Twitter to do that kind of censorship of those accounts. Right? It's not. I, like, I don't see any evidence that advertisers told them to do that. Wait. The, first of all, those things aren't mutually exclusive. Well, I know, but, I, but I've, I've actually seen the emails about the one, and I haven't seen anything about yeah, the other. Yeah, so my, my point is that just because you saw an email, like, I'm sorry, but I, when I interviewed Matt Taibbi and I asked him, how many documents are there total? What percentage are you allowed to look at? Try to run through the numbers and get a sense of how comprehensive the review was. The review just wasn't that comprehensive. And that's not a critique of what was reviewed. Mm -hmm. That's just an understanding of that, that there was a lot more to be seen. And that we, it's like we were looking at you know, the tail of an elephant and projecting onto what the whole beast is. And I just think there's a lot more there, especially since we know that the bulk of the content moderation decisions that are made on these kinds of apps are algorithmically, and we haven't gotten into that at all. Well, we, That's are, all but I'm we are, but that doesn't mean it's not, I mean, well, I, okay, some of the moderation is being done algorithmically. Most of it. Appropriately. Um, you know, they're just, they're having you, you know, take down, they're automatically taking down child porn or something else, or, or like actual violent extremist content. Um, but you say that, I, I mean, I really don't mean to get into all of this, but before this became a whole political debate, a lot of the criticism of these apps, including from people on the left, was that the neutral content moderation that was happening via algorithm was not neutral at all. People were pointing out that certain body types that showed cleavage were getting stripped down from TikTok, whereas other body types it wasn't about how much you were actually showing of your body. It had to do with the kind of body that you had. People were c complaining that if you said the N-word a bunch of times in the app, you weren't taken off the app. I can attest to that, thanks to everybody in my mentions. But if you said other kinds of hate, hate you know, language like I hate white people or white tears or whatever, people were getting taken off the app. That's anecdotal. I don't know how much that happened. But again, nobody knows because there hasn't been an investigation into what the algorithms were doing. Hmm. All right, well, we'll have more rising right after this.
Five Americans being held in Iran are one step closer to being set free. The U.S. struck a deal with Iran to swap five Iranian prisoners with the Americans. The U.S. also agreed to unfreeze $6 billion of Iranian funds. Now, the arrangement has been in the works for a month, but Secretary of State Antony Blinken officially signed off on it last week. Meanwhile, Congress was only notified yesterday on the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, this according to the AP. Critics balked at the broker deal. Republican Senator Joni Ernst posted her reaction on X, writing, quote, This will only green light Iran's illicit actions and encourage further hostage diplomacy. Biden's failed strategy of appeasement must, must end. Joining us now to break it down is Executive Vice President of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, Dr. Trita Parsi. Welcome, Dr. Parsi. Thank you so much for having me. All right, help us get a little background on the situation. Who are uh, the, the people that are being uh, released first and foremost? So these are ordinary Iranian Americans. Uh, many of them lived in the United States. One of them lived in the Middle East, traveled to Iran, visited family, were essentially taken hostage. Uh, one of them has been in jail in Iran wrongfully for more than seven years. And in, to the point of, you know, that releasing this money that is Iran's own money, with fuel more hostage-taking, I think it's important to keep in mind that uh, these uh, five Iranian Americans, at least most of them, uh, were taken long before the money was confiscated by the United States. Some of these statements by uh, U.S. politicians that oppose this still seem to suggest that, uh, uh, you know, uh, that the release of this money will fuel more hostage-taking as if those hostages were taken after the money was taken, but it's actually the other way around. So there's there's no evidence uh, that this in any way, shape or form will increase that. On the contrary, what we have seen in the past over the course of more than 20, 30 years of U.S.-Iran relations is that as bad as the relations gets, that's when you see, unfortunately, this type of hostage taking uh, increasing. So if we actually want to end that, then we should be working towards having a more normal and constructive relationship, which of course would address the many differences between the United States and Iran, but would move them towards resolution rather than intensified conflict. So is this uh, arrangement a sign we are moving in that direction? Obviously, we've had you on the show uh, many times in the past to discuss, um, you know, the kind of disintegration of better relations between the U.S. and Iran. Is this a sign we're maybe, you know, going back in the direction of what you thought was a good foreign policy? No, I think, unfortunately, at most, this will end up being a bit of a pause. The escalation between the two sides had gotten uh, quite intense. We saw that with the uh, taking of Iranian ships, Iranian proxies attacking U.S. forces in Syria, etc. So this is trying to climb down from that, at least temporarily. But uh, in and of itself is not an indication that we are trying to move things towards a positive trajectory. It's a necessary step towards that, but I don't foresee any major movements by the administration in that direction, at least not before the elections. In fact, the only priority administration seems to have in the region uh, before the elections is to move forward with the Saudi-Israeli normalization, not to necessarily resolve deeper problems with Iran. I mean, this... Uh, in, in continuing bad relationship or devolving relationship with Iran. I wonder if you could speak to the relationship between that reality and the news coming out of the BRICS uh, meeting in South Africa last month when Iran was invited, along with uh, five other countries, to join the Economic Alliance, an alliance that is a move toward financial independence from the United States and the West and freedom, potentially, from the West having control 
via sanctions, holding up money in the way uh, that was done and now is being undone to get these uh, hostages back. Uh, is the diminished relationship between the United States and Iran part of what has pushed Iran, along with another, a number of other countries, to be seeking this kind of financial independence, economic independence? Oh, certainly. If you take a look what happened in the 1990s and the debate in the United States when the United States first started imposing extraterritorial sanctions in Iran, the debate back then was uh, riddled with arguments that said this is a move that will punish the Iranians, will impose a lot of harsh economic uh, uh, measures on them, but ultimately will push them into the arms of Russia and China. 25, 30 years later, we see clearly that that has been the broader outcome of this. The Iranians are still there, uh, and much of their foreign policy has become more problematic from a U.S. standpoint. And now they're clearly moving much closer to the Russians and the Chinese, particularly the financial sanctions have incentivized all of them to develop a non-dollar trade uh, uh, mechanisms. Uh, at the same time, I think the BRICS, including Iran, shows another thing, which is that from the 1990s, mid-1990s and forward, the United States was the gatekeeper of who is in the community of nations and who is a pariah. The United States almost single-handedly could decide whether one country had a pariah status or not. With Iran, despite its massive human rights abuses, despite what happened last year and continues to happen in terms of them brutally clamping down on women's protesters, joining the BRICS is a clear indication that the United States has lost that gatekeeping capacity of being able to say who is and who is in and who is out. This is a new reality, a world that is certainly moving away from unipolarity, whether it's moving towards bipolarity, multipolarity, et cetera, remains to be seen. But the unipolar capacities that the United States had in the past are clearly gone at this point. You mentioned the criticism this arrangement is receiving from uh, many politicians. Um, you know, this is the Biden administration is doing this, so it's receiving some knee-jerk criticism from Republicans. At the same time, you know, Republicans have criticized um, Biden for, uh, you know, for being um, maybe too um, hawkish toward Russia in the funding of what's going on in Ukraine. There's, there's been a lot of appetite among Republican, among the base, at least some appetite for a, a different foreign policy that's less hostile, less, um, you know, military focus, focused on confrontation with, with Russia, at least, less so China. There's obviously much appetite for confrontation there. At least among the political figures, it's harder to see, again, among the base. And obviously, there's a base of Democrats who want the same thing, it, you know, often being at odds with the elites in both parties. You know, what, what how do you... How should supporters of, you know, more normal relations, a more a diplomatic, peaceful uh, uh, relationship between the U.S. and Iran, um, uh, you know, try to re try to recruit like-minded people on both the Democratic and Republican circles, given that there is this appetite in other contexts? I, I think you're quite right, and you're pointing to something that is quite a discrepancy on some uh, on the Republican side, who otherwise are standing strongly against uh, forever wars, don't want to see foreign uh, policy entanglements with no end, et cetera, et cetera. Iran ends up becoming a very clear and big exception for them oftentimes. And I think to a very large extent that is driven by uh, Donald Trump's own uh, pet project on Iran in the sense that 
he pulled out of the JCPOA as a retaliation against Obama, wanted to undo everything Obama had done, and then elevated Iran to become essentially an identity issue in which some of these other considerations don't really come into play, which is quite odd because uh, war with Iran would be one of the biggest forever wars and would be far more devastating war than uh, war with uh, Iraq or Afghanistan. So you would clearly, you should clearly see a strong interest on the Republican side not moving in that direction. However, I think for many of them, this is just seen as a cost-free political um, uh, maneuvering in which you know the criticism, uh, it, you know, wins them certain support in certain places, but doesn't really risk moving it towards. Uh, a military confrontation, or at least not in a way that they would be held responsible for it. It's still, in my view, an irresponsible uh, approach to this because we cannot constantly be on the verge of some form of military confrontation with Iran and at the same time say that we think that that is a policy that makes us safe. Have you been following these statements made by various uh, candidates in the Republican prim primary about Iran? And do you have a sense of which are perhaps doing this identity-based saber-rattling and which are expressing um, sentiments that are genuinely dangerous? Or maybe the saber-rattling is also dangerous? I've not seen any particular nuance amongst the Republican primary um, candidates at this point. And again, where you would find nuances are likely going to be on other foreign policy issues than Iran. Iran is essentially the toughest one for them. And again, uh, Trump defines this field very much. And anyone who would try to uh, inject the degree of nuance on this issue would not only come up against other uh, very entrenched interests on this issue, but also up against Trump. And I'm not seeing uh, anyone uh, in that field that has that um, uh, would like to make that calculation. Ultimately, I think it's a major problem because it's quite fascinating. If we actually had a better relationship with Iran, which my, in my view, first and foremost, would loosen the grip of some of the most hardline and some of the most repressive elements inside that country. They are the ones that truly have benefited from a confrontational approach. That is part of the reason why they themselves are constantly trying to escalate and raise the tensions between the United States and Iran because they benefit from it. And our playing into that has also benefited them, of course. But if that were to be broken, uh, it's really quite fascinating to see some of the parts of the United States that would benefit the most economically from having a much more open trade uh, relationship with Iran are actually primarily Republican districts, both states and uh, congressional districts, because primarily because of their agricultural industries, which would be a prime uh, supplier of agricultural products to Iran if sanctions were not in place. Dr. Parsi, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Ron DeSantis is taking a new line of attack against the Biden administration, scorching Vice President Kamala Harris as impeachment insurance. I think she's basically been his impeachment insurance because people know no matter how bad Biden is, nobody wants Harris. If you remember when asked if she's prepared to take the reins in the White House, this is what Kamala Harris told Face the Nation anchor Margaret Brennan this past Sunday. Are you prepared to be commander in chief? Yes, I am if necessary, but Joe Biden is going to be fine. The ladies on The View jumped to defend the vice president, opposing the notion that most people don't want a President Harris. Here's a clip from yesterday's program. 
How many times do people have to say it? And you know, when they say a poll, you know, I love polls. <laughs> we snuck that a was, bunch in while you were away. <laughs> that, well, that was 1,800 people they checked. Yeah. That's not half of America, right. okay? That's 18. I want them to just say it's 1,800 people. We talked to 1,800 people. Quit saying it's a poll and this is what everybody's <laughs> thinking because we're hip to you now. The other co-host weighed in saying she had handled questions about Biden's age, quote, perfectly. Does Whoopi Goldberg not understand how polls work? It seems like she's just getting hip to the program and she's spreading the word far and wide that polls are not, in fact, the same thing as millions of people voting. It is a sample size, which gives you some indication but as to, to what the broader public... representative of the population, though. <laughs> I mean, we can certainly look... We can certainly look into polls too much, but to say it's just like... Yeah, and look, there's good polls and bad polls, sure. but what we know is that all polls suggest that Kamala Harris has <laughs> never been popular. <laughs> Well, they just keep surveying the wrong 1,800 people. The, the, the Kamala Harris supporters are always not in that group of people. If they get a phone book out, go down to Harris, and then ask all of her cousins and nieces and grandparents, and the like, maybe they'll, they'll get better results. Okay. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe, because her own constituents in California, uh, where she was senator, weren't that excited about her in the first place. Remember, she had to drop out of the Democratic primary prior to California because Polls showed that uh, relative unknown Andrew Yang was beating her in her home state. Maybe they should try affluent white women in the Northeast. <laughs> I think that might I, be a constituency I, honestly, that would like her. I, I think that it is, it, is, it is literally the people who graduated in her class at Howard and were also in her sorority. I yeah. think there's like, there's like 5,000 AKA spread across the United States of America that love Kamala Harris. And they all live here in Washington, D.C. Um, you, it is not uncommon, this will shock you, real Americans, it is not uncommon to see someone sporting like a Kamala Harris t-shirt in D.C. I've seen it before. Yeah, my favorite, well, the nature of identity politics is my favorite is when it's usually like a young white woman who's wearing that. Sure, yeah. And they look at me. I've never seen a black person I'm jogging it, <laughs> in my Bernie shirt and they glare at me and I look at them and it's, it's a whole dynamic. I have never worn a political shirt ever. Well, look. I never will. Well, you, you weren't national press secretary right. for a campaign. Right, sure. I got a plenty yeah. of free swag. Sure. But look, I want to ask you about this uh, DeSantis approach. Uh, what do you make of the idea of trying to um, weaponize Kamala Harris as Biden's backup plan as a way to uh, kind of, I guess, jumpstart the yes. general election and, and make it a, a, a tee off between him and Biden? One word, smart. Yeah. But, but it's not a particularly novel idea. Um, Kamala Harris, as we've noted, is is not, she's maybe at best as popular as Biden, and then there are many indications that she's less popular than Biden. Um, that, you know, Biden stepping aside just to have Kamala Harris would not be, there's very little evidence to suggest that would be an electoral improvement, that that would improve the Democratic Party's performance. Um, it's obvious that Republicans know that and have noticed that. And so honestly, running against Kamala Harris is smarter than running against Biden. She's even less popular. So, um, so it is, you know, as a way to argue, Joe Biden is out of it. He's not up to the job. And if he falls down on the job, then it's Kamala Harris who's even worse. Yeah, that's a slam dunk argument.
So the Washington Post asked this question yesterday uh, in an op-ed by Aaron Blake called How Americans Feel About Kamala Harris uh, coming, Becoming President. He cites a CBS YouGov poll that asked a number of questions about Harris, saying, and the verdict was not encouraging. The poll showed that 42 percent of Americans said the job Harris was doing makes them think worse of the Biden administration compared to just 18 percent who said it makes them think better, while 76 percent of Republicans said she makes them think worse, just 41 percent of Democrats. Democrats said she makes them think better. Independents lean strongly toward worse as well, 48% to 9%. Similarly, just 30% of Democrats said they feel enthusiastic about Harris as Biden's running mate. That's not even like president in his stead, just as a running mate, while three-quarters of Democrats said they were at least satisfied with Harris on the ticket. Um, that enthusiastic number is cut in half from where it was shortly after Biden picked her for his running mate in 2020. Hmm. Well, now Harris was pressed on CBS recently about the administration's uh, views on abortion. Her answer was not exactly straightforward. Let's take a look. Republicans say the lack of a precise date in cutting it off. You know this. They say that allows Democrats to perform abortions up until, you know, birth. Which is ridiculous. Which is statistically which is, which is, not accurate. And, and it's ridiculous. I understand and it's a that. mischaracterization so, of the point. No, the point but, is. But the do point you need is to be more precise? To, I am being precise. We need to put into law the protections of Roe versus Wade. What? She's not useful. Yeah. To Biden. Yeah. Honestly, Nikki Haley did, sounded more persuasive, compassionate, and normal when she was talking about abortion during the debate than Kamala Harris sounds there, despite me agreeing with where Kamala Harris is or where I think she is on abortion. Because, again, she didn't really unpack the way that the reporter was asking her to unpack what the actual policy is, besides just saying Roe v. Wade needs to come back into play. And maybe that's strategic, because most people do want whatever existed before. They want to reset to the Roe v. Wade standard, even if they don't know exactly what that is. But her job has to be, especially given Biden's state, of being a better, more eloquent voice piece for him and what his administration wants to get across. And I don't know that she's the person for that. Yeah, I don't either. Um, I mean, she just doesn't seem to add anything. But I've said this before, I don't know how they could possibly switch her out now. They're, they're clearly not going to, right? They think, I mean, you think they could, but... They could so easily. They say, they, won't do they it. talk to Kamala they Harris, they it. get her to agree to it, they give her a bunch of money or some fancy appointment somewhere, privately, and then publicly she says, because of personal reasons, I feel like I have to step down. You don't think that get probed aggressively? Who cares? Literally nobody cares about her. Like, who's going to be the person making this into a, a media cycle? A couple of people over at the Griot? No, black people don't even like her. Nobody really cares. Yeah, I mean, it's Republicans will say Joe Biden can't run the country. He can't even pick his own team or something. Donald Trump tried to get his vice president killed. <laughs> I, I think they're okay with the vice no. president stuff. But Joe, Trump is also not—his own vice president is running against him in the primary. So the, if it's a tit-for-tat about not having confidence in your VP picks, I don't think the Democrats have anything to worry about. Okay. <laughs> we'll have more rising right after this.
Joe Rogan and Tulsi Gabbard slammed the federal government Go Maui's on. response during a recent episode of the Joe Rogan Experience. Let's watch. On television, after a massive tragedy where you have, we don't even know the number of people dead yet. You have this massive area that's been burnt to the ground. Yeah. And then he starts talking about taking it over from, for the state. That's an insane position to take. It is. Post-tragedy. When and people I, are suffering at their most, they can't yeah. even believe it happened. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he's saying, we're going to take it for the state and make yeah. a memorial? Yeah. How about give the f people their homes exactly. back? Later, Gabbard described her experience speaking to the survivors of the fire. Calculated how much money we had set aside for Ukraine. So we have an extra $4 billion to send now that we didn't know we had. And this has happened a few times. Secretary of State Tony Blinken went to Kiev yesterday promising, hey, we're going to give you another billion now. And this is the thing. When I was out there in Maui, person after person was like, Tulsi, tell me what would happen if we started to call ourselves Ukraine? You think they would give us some money then? Mm -hmm. So I love the idea that people are drawing these direct comparisons between where the government is obviously willing to spend money, which is in overseas exploits and war, but not on domestic policy and the poor. This is the most famous Tupac lyric, and I'm glad to see it playing out here. Now, I am concerned about whether or not, one, it, it's going to be results-driven because it is coming, it seems, exclusively from people who are not aligned with, with um, the Democratic Party. I would love to hear more of the progressive Democrats taking this line of approach and criticizing the ballooning uh, military budget at the same time that it criticizes the lack of domestic spending. And I would also like to see some of these progressives call out conservatives who obstructed the biggest domestic, tried to obstruct the biggest domestic spending package one of the biggest of all time, if not the biggest of all time, in the COVID relief package, at the same time that they are all going around the country taking credit for the money as it gets appropriated to their respective states. I think this is good. I think this is great. But if it's going to be results-driven, I think it has to seem like less of a partisan um, exploit and more really geared toward putting pressure on those in power who have the power to distribute more aid to people in Maui, people in East Palestine, people in Chicago, people in San Francisco, people in Mississippi, and all around the country, not just on a partisan basis and where it makes Biden look bad. Sure. I mean, getting the, um, <laughs> the Ukraine funding withdrawn or canceled or we've, the, the end of it would be a worthwhile goal in and of itself, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, so pointing out that hypocrisy, you know, if it gets... If it gets, if it, I guess, if it moves in the direction of Republicans, say, you know, you, you're unwilling to fund all these, all sorts of things, but Ukraine is a blank check, foreign policy in general is a blank check. Where is the, you know, how how is that possibly consistent? You know, that's something that motivates uh, a lot of libertarians make those arguments to try to turn Republicans into libertarians to be like, you, you know, you oppose all this, you know. Welfare spending, d domestic spend, just spending in general. But then, when it comes to our foreign projects, it's it, you write a blank check. How is that possibly consistent, and how can you justify that? So I, I hope you know those arguments take hold as a way to constrain what we're doing in Ukraine. Obviously, with 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 emergencies like Maui, you know, I, whatever um, emergency, you know, whatever funds are designated for the purpose of emergencies, I, I think should be spent on them um, I, to, you know, make people's lives better there. Um, I, I, have we had any news or updates on what is going to be spent in Maui? I thought you said that there, there have been some funds approved. Uh, yes, uh, there. Uh, Maui, I think this just came out yesterday, is to receive nearly ninety-five million dollars in federal aid for temporary housing and meals. 
Uh, the administration said this is a down payment on what is necessary, but it's essential help uh, and that they'll keep working hard to bring federal resources uh, to the area. I've been following one, I believe, a former representative from Hawaii who is progressive and has been critical of Biden's response throughout, who hailed this as a, quote, huge win. That's from Kaniela Ng. Uh, but, you know, there is still this, I think, an interesting contrast that Joe Rogan and, and Tulsi Gabbard were raising with the comparison of the $6 billion that was found in the context of Ukraine aid that had fallen between the proverbial sofa cushions and the $95 million that's being allotted here. And the number, I haven't vetted it, but that they came up with in that clip that says it would take $5 billion to rebuild all of the homes that were lost. Um, so again, I do think that drawing contrast between the incredible spending that we're willing to do in our military budget and the way that domestic policies, domestic spending gets so much pushback. I mean, remember, we had a whole year of fighting over the infrastructure bill, and infrastructure was supposed to be one of those bipartisan notions where everyone can agree that the country needs its infrastructure from the middle of the last century to be updated. We have highways in Pennsylvania sliding into ditches, and we have um, flooding and wildfires across the country. We have a highway system that hasn't up been updated in 70 years. We have dams that are cracking and bridges that are falling down. This should not be a political issue. You need an infrastructure for a, a country to run. But of course, it was an issue. And we got the bifurcation of Built Back Better. We got incredible cuts down to the teeth of these kinds of programs and down to the bitter end. And it came down to a largely partisan vote. Um, so, you know, we have to keep in mind that ideologically, there are differences between people who are more libertarian-minded and pe who might be making this argument and people who are more left-minded who are making this argument, because I think you would admit to, libertarians want there to not be any more military spending, but they also don't want there to be domestic spending. So there's a way that it can sound like two people are both making the argument of drawing contrast between how dare you spend so much over there and not spend over here, but one camp also doesn't want them to spend over here. And if you really are invested in people in East Palestine and in Maui and in Flint, Michigan and in Jackson, Mississippi, actually getting aid because you value them as citizens of this country who have been failed by their governments with lead in their pipes and fires ripping through their towns and a response system that hasn't been up to uh, up to date and didn't work effectively, mm -hmm. then you've got to make sure that you're backing politicians who are actually incentivized, who actually have as their goal distributing those funds and not just using military spending as a talking point. Well, here's how I would respond to that. I mean, the reality is that the citizens of the country, including the citizens of Hawaii, pay, do pay a lot in taxes. That money has been confiscated for them. There are better and worse uses for it. Um, I think probably most people feel like, look, I mean, I mean, I'm not a total anarchist. I don't necessarily think the government shouldn't exist at all. Um, probably what the, the services people most want to get out of their government is Right, basic police and fire and protection in the event of emergencies. That's I think that's what they feel like they're paying into it. Um, those are services that would have to be provided some way, even if there was no no government. Right, even if it was all privatized or something. I mean, people, if, a society that doesn't have basic emergency services is. I mean, it's a tautology. It's not a society at all. Um, so to the extent there's a proper um, role for government to play, and again, people, this is this is people's money, and it goes into a a fund to be, you know, the way an, an insurance system works. You're not necessarily going to use that, but you don't want to take the risk of having to pay the catastrophic toll yourself. So you pay into a fund, and then when that happens to someone, then they get to take the the the, the authority takes the money out of the fund and uses it on them. So I'm not like 
I mean, I'm not objecting to an emergency payment system. And people have paid into a system where they expect to get something out of it. Um, that, that said, the government's revenues are gigantic, gigantic. So the idea that they couldn't find, um, they can't find money to help people desperately in need. When people pay tax money so this can be taken care of, is, uh, yeah, I can see why people are frustrated with that. I'm not necessarily saying there's anything wrong with that, although I, there might be a, a better system one could possibly design. Yeah. Well, I, I, people also pay tax money so that they aren't poor in old age. It's called Social Security. Uh, they pay old uh, tax money so that they can have health care in their old age. It's called, or if they're um, disabled, it's called Medicare and Medicaid. And you got people in both parties who routinely try to make cuts to those programs despite people paying in. When those programs have solvency issues, they don't say, okay, how about we remove the cap on rich people? You know, if I make a billion dollars a year, I pay exactly as much into Social Security as somebody who makes, I think the cutoff is like 160, like just under $200,000 a year. Uh, does that make sense? Well, Why not address that in terms of solvency? They, they don't but instead, the plan has been to simply raise the retirement age and do things like that. So they're, you know, it's a it's we're a little bit oversimplifying it here. I, I think that also we we throw tons of money at incarcerating people uh, for crimes of poverty, homelessness, things like that. When uh, there was a recent study that showed just giving homeless people seven thousand dollars ended up saving costs in terms of shelters, et cetera, just handing over the cash. So people have some interesting and not always well geared toward actually fixing the problem ideas about what is a good source, a good way to spend if, money to if address hand, the underlying if given, problem. giving every homeless person in D.C. $7,000 meant there'd be no homelessness instead of whatever other government services we have to provide, of course I would do it in a really? snap of my fingers. Oh, that's, that's, whatever that's is the hear. cheapest way to not have crazy people on the streets living in tents um, shouting at you and attacking you would would be is absolutely fine with me. But, that doesn't. And yeah. if we don't have to put them in cages or detain them to do it, that's fantastic. I have serious doubts, no, serious doubts that that is the it, case. It, it, but I would love to be persuaded otherwise. All right, maybe we'll do it on a segment next week because <laughs> that that new study was interesting. It wasn't obviously all homeless people. There's an addiction and mental health problem mm -hmm. as well. But there were it, it was a cost savings to simply hand people money. We've seen this also with some studies that show what improves school performance is just giving families enough money so that the parents aren't taking on that second shift. They're home to make breakfast in the morning for their kid, to help them with their homework at night, does much more than throwing money at school districts even. So. Yeah, I, uh, well, we don't really disagree there. I, I've seen studies on various social issues that in, instead of designing a government program that needs to be administered by a bunch of, the, the more the more qualifications you put on, the more the more it's a program, the more it takes a bureaucracy to maintain yes. it, the more you're just throwing away money yes. and you're giving it to government employees, yes. where it's just generally just, if you would, t instead of setting up a bureaucracy and paying people to administer it, whatever the, whatever the thing is, just giving that money back to people yes. would pro is probably a better, yeah, that, I, yes, I mean, that's not a... Yes, and means testing, which is, is, is people love, right? People, conservatives historically have loved because they don't like the idea of undeserving poor getting their hands on some kind of program, saying that you have to have whatever work requirement or jump through whatever hoop which of course doesn't exist when you're doling out PPP funds, but never mind. Right. But that's exactly, it's administrative bloat, it costs money to administer, and when we saw with the student debt example, it also gives op people opportunity to challenge things in court and gum up the works instead of just giving people the money. Um, so I, I, like to, I like to see a little bit of simpatico here on this one, Robbie. <laughs> How about that? We got there. More <laughs> rising right after this.
6 just in, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy has opened a formal impeachment inquiry against President Biden based on House Republicans' probes into the foreign business dealings of the Biden family. Let's watch. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. That's why today I am directing our House committee to open a formal impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. This logical next step will give our committees the full power to gather all the facts and answers for the American public. That's exactly what we want to know, the answers. I believe the President would want to answer these questions and allegations as well. This effort will be led by Chairman James Comer at the Committee on Oversight in coordination with Chairman Jim Jordan for Judiciary Committee and Chairman Jason Smith on Ways and Means. Now, the White House responded to these developments as they were reported this morning. Spokesperson Ian Sams tweeted, Opening an impeachment inquiry despite zero evidence of wrongdoing by the president is simply red meat for the extreme right wing so they can keep baselessly attacking him. Uh, are you surprised by this, Robbie? No, I'm not surprised by this at all, um, given that uh, investigating uh, Hunter Biden and the business dealings and whether they involved Joe Biden or whether there's something corrupt or untoward there is one of the major issues um, holding the Republican Party together, drawing its focus. You can see it on conservative news. You can see it among uh, the attitudes of the base. Um, they want this fully uh, fleshed out. Uh, I think it is obviously reasonable to raise the objection that there is no compelling evidence yet on the Joe Biden side, and the, thus an impeachment inquiry is a little premature, to say the least. Um, a continued inquiry to investigate whether there is reason to launch an impeachment inquiry would be fine. Um, but, you know, Republicans will say, and, I, and many of them deeply believe, that you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, that this is a response to Democratic escalation on all sorts of Trump matters since, you know, the beginning of that era. Yeah. Unless it's perfectly fine. Well, Jeremy Raskin uh, put forward a number, a response in which he basically tallied up a bunch of bullet points of instances in which Republicans have questioned uh, the paucity of evidence uh, here in this particular case. Uh, he notes that on Fox News, Steve Ducey has repeatedly questioned Chairman Comer's inability to point to, quote, any evidence that shows President Biden is compromised, that any policy was ever influenced, or that any crime was committed, even stating, quote, you don't actually have any facts to that point. You've got some circumstantial evidence. Um, and the other thing is all of those names, the one person who didn't profit uh, is there's no evidence that Joe Biden did anything illegally. Um, former, Donald, uh, former Trump official Sebastian Gorka tweeted that, quote, Comer is failing in his efforts to investigate President Biden. That could be a crit critique of the nature of the investigation rather than the results of Certainly. that investigation. Comer still being in charge here, though, doesn't necessarily reflect well on the prospects of getting any new information, though, potentially, um, and on and on and on. Well, sure. And, and I don't think—I think, I think that, uh, Kevin McCarthy and the other Republicans, I, I don't think they disagree with that. They're, I don't think 
I haven't heard them saying that evidence, we have that evidence. They're saying we're going to pursue this evidence. Well, well then Ken Buck, uh, Representative Ken Buck, Republican, argued this is impeachment theater. We are right now starting the appropriations process, adding, I don't think it's responsible for us to talk about impeachment. Um, and he described Speaker McCarthy as using impeachment as a, quote, shiny object to distract members of the public. I mean, there is real division among Republicans as to whether or not this is a worthwhile endeavor. And I do think there's a legitimate concern here, even if you think there's potentially a there there. What happens when another round of investigations don't yield anything more than what we already know? And now you have to confront the public's mm -hmm. perception that you've wasted time during this appropriations uh, uh, context. They've just been gone on recess for all of August. They come back, and instead of getting down to the business of legislating for the American public, they go on, a, on an investigation to see if there's enough evidence for an investigation. I mean, I, I think they should pursue that investigation. I, I don't know that they should pursue an, an impeachment. In fact, I don't think they should Im pursue an impeachment inquiry until they have much more solid proof. Um, and also, they should be wary of, you know, the, the whole sky is falling, boy who cried wolf kind of situation that the Dems have got themselves into so much trouble with over Trump. When, you know, no one was persuadable by the time January 6th came along because of uh, the first impeachment and everything else. And also, there's been so much, you know, there's nothing to see here from the Democratic side on the Hunter Biden story, the, the laptop, et cetera, that they lost credibility and was like, oh, there actually is something here. So Republicans should be wary of, very wary of putting the cart before the horse if they want to, particularly if they want to persuade or speak to people not already in the Republican coalition, if they want to make the case that Joe Biden should not be president again, mm -hmm. be, not, not just because of his policies and his age, but actually because of his, his uh, not being honest about um, his, his arrangement with Hunter Biden and how he was involved in that, it's not, again, that's not proven yet. There are good questions. It, the situation is different from how President Biden described it. We have a lot more detail on what Burisma thought it was getting out of this relationship. Um, Hunter Biden putting, you know, phone calls, uh, having Joe Biden call in to these dinners he was having, these meetings, um, the dinner that Joe Biden attended. Um, the, uh, there are still a lot of very valid questions about what Joe Biden did vis-a-vis -vis Ukrainian policy, why Hunter Biden's salary gets cut when uh, when when Joe Biden is no longer the vice president. But again, that that is circumstantial, and I think it should be continued to be investigated. Glenn Greenwald um, applauded, I see in Twitter, applauded Nancy Mace uh, for asking about uh, these sus supposedly suspicious bank reports that are sh shocking given the huge amounts, and you know uh, criticized. We played this clip earlier mm -hmm. of Nancy Mace talking to Caitlin Collins. Where uh, and he and Glenn is criticizing Caitlin and the rest of the media for seeming like totally uninterested in what these bank reports might show. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a fine line between being uninterested in what the bank reports might show and having to con all these years into this having to use words like might and could be yeah. when I'm sorry, Donald Trump was president for four years. It can't just be. Biden's administration has been blocking a real investigation into what happened here. We're talking about events that happened long before Joe Biden's presidency, events that happened while he was vice president. That's the hook. The idea that he, as a vice president, was using the office in a pay-for-play scheme. So, 
You know, I, well, I, I, I look, something might happen. I, I think the Republicans should be hoping and praying that there's something, anything new that turns up. Or I think we might start to experience the same kind of exhaustion and disappointment that, I mean, we've been experiencing covering some of this alien news when it doesn't seem like any new stuff is, is, is dropping. And on top of that, it's more serious because I, it's, this is what I was saying with the woke stuff before. At the end of the day, I think Americans experiencing all this economic precarity, which the Republicans have been highlighting, and fairly so, are not going to look kindly at the idea of what looks like a circus when they're paying these people six-figure salaries to legislate on their behalf. And, and it's the same that's true of the Democrats. I think the impeachments, to your point, were largely empty. But the difference is the Democrats are no longer playing with impeachments. They're playing with criminal indictments, several of which have substance right, with respect to Donald Trump. Which is more serious than the impeachment. Yeah, which is more intangible and, and, and real. You can say that it was a political prosecution, but we all, Donald Trump messed up by not just responding to the document request, and he broke the law, allegedly. Donald Trump has credible allegations of not just saying some bad things on one or some spicy content on one six mm -hmm. from a podium, but of committing fraud. And, and document fraud and all these other kinds of things in the context of the fake slates of electors in the I mean, life. You can, you can assert that they're credible. Um, ma millions of Americans don't think they're credible. Millions okay. of Americans do. Well, this impeachment inquiry is going to happen, and the way the impeachment inquiries happen, it's not even sure if it's going to get out of the House. Yeah. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is having to show up for court dates. And, and his attorneys are selecting juries. And that's happening. That's a real thing that's happening in states across the country. Um, and so I, I, I don't know. This is, this is an iffy bargain. There are some uh, other kind of implications. There have been arguments that um, the reason that Kevin McCarthy is going along with this is to appease the more conservative portion of his coalition so with the hope that he's able to Debt ceiling deal. It passed the debt right. ceiling and deal. And I've heard him say that explicitly on t on cable news recently. Uh, I think on Fox saying that we have to you know vote to lift the debt ceiling yeah. so we can keep the government in business so that we can do these investigations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because many in his his uh, coalition are perfectly happy. They have been in the past to have a government shutdown. Yeah. He's trying to avoid that by yeah. making the case that the investigations need to continue. So that which in is, and of that's itself, very important subtext for what's going yes. on here. And that in and of itself is kind of a vote of no confidence if he's only oh. going along with it to appease a small faction of the Republican coalition. You said earlier that he's going to be putting his full weight behind you it. You said earlier that the fact that the Trump administration could have looked into this and done something about it and didn't as good evidence or against they did it. and didn't find anything. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't know how, uh, you know, your garden variety Republican feels about this, but the Trump administration's chaotic and confused approach does not necessarily mean their, their lack of competence on accomplishing a lot of the things Trump set out to do with respect to the weaponization of the federal government, you know, not doing, I mean, they didn't do, there's so much they didn't do. So that, I don't know that okay. that's the, now, I don't think that's a great answer to, uh, a great argument to reelect Donald Trump either. And uh, maybe Republican primary voters need to reckon with the fact that so many of the problems they think the, that that are still exists in the federal government, why is Trump the person to answer They're it again? They're getting jerked around. Donald Trump says, elect me and I'm going to throw the Bidens in jail. It doesn't happen for one reason or another. Maybe yeah. there wasn't anything to find. Maybe they did find things, but 
this is a point that uh, Michael Del Rosa was making when we got back and forth, we're in the back and forth with him last week. He's like, well, Republicans have done other pay-for-play stuff, too. I think that's a very good reason why nobody wants to potentially touch this, because if your kid can do it, my kid can do it. We've seen this with regulating stock trading in Congress. Yeah. Everyone, in a bipartisan way, is kind of like, okay, let's just keep doing this because we all benefit. That could be plausibly why Donald Trump didn't decide to bring the hammer down on Biden's kids. He's got plenty of kids of his own. I don't know. This is all speculation. But at the end of the day, instead of the business of doing things that are important, that Donald Trump ran on, that are populist in nature, that are geared toward making the lives of poor and working class people better, we're treated to a bunch of Congress members coming back from their August vacations while the rest of America has been slaving through the summer and doing this pageantry where there's not a lot of solid evidence instead of focusing on things that I think would really materially benefit America, the American people. They went through this with four years of Trump. Do they want another few months of this? Instead of doling out appropriations, again, that are going to localities I mean, that are supposed to benefit well, American people. They can people. walk into gum at the same time. Can they? they? can get answers on can they? what is going on with the Biden. Because Trump didn't. Well, I, I don't know that Trump can, but and a, Republicans should be able to. And a substantial portion of Republicans that are in the House right now seem not to be particularly enthusiastic about this or optimistic that this will return results. And Kevin McCarthy, it seems, is in that flank. Well, I think he knows that um, stall, having a government shutdown would be bad for Republicans. It has not helped them in the past with poll numbers, and this is a way to prevent that. So it's actually good politics if it... Well, no, because part of the argument is that he, he thinks that he's going to be able to make that pitch, but there is one person who has the authority to designate what stays open, what, what small number of officials get paid through a mm -hmm. shutdown to keep the bare minimum going, and that's Kevin McCarthy. So they're, they're the, the people who want there to be an impeachment, the Freedom Caucus or, or what have you, are in a position where they can say, well, you keeping the Biden investigation going, the impeachment inquiry going, has nothing to do with whether or not there's a shutdown. Those things are decoupled All in right, terms of they, this. They have to shut down a lot of stuff, so then it becomes a matter of priorities. I, I think I, I, that's getting into the weeds a little. I mean, you're, you're, I'm not saying you're wrong, but I, I think the simpler argument that we can't shut down the government because the government has important work to do investigating the Bidens is a pitch you can make, but we'll see. We'll see. More rising for you right after this. Viewers of Rising, we know you will be relieved to hear the Food and Drug Administration greenlit the updated COVID-19 boosters Monday for people six months and older in an effort to provide fuller protection against the new variant, XBB 1.5, ahead of a possible winter uptick in cases. Third-party advisors to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention are set to make recommendations today about who should get the new shots manufactured by pharmaceutical giants Pfizer and Moderna. The non-mRNA option has not been approved as of yet. Meanwhile, the Gray Zone's Max Blumenthal shed light on Moderna's profit boost, no pun intended, from its COVID vaccine. He wrote, Moderna went from brink of failure to big pharma titan thanks to the mandates and propaganda blitzkrieg that, promoted, uh, that prompted untold millions to take its junk vaccine. So now it's able to sponsor shot of the day for the rare athlete who refused to take the shot. He was referring, of course, to a uh, image of uh, men's U.S. Open sponsored, uh, of the men's open, which was sponsored by Moderna 
Moderna, in which Novak Djokovic, who famously refused to get vaccinated, he had won, uh, did not get the vaccine. And there was that—it um, was a Moderna's shot of the day. It was, it was sponsored by Moderna, the clip. It was very, very amusing. Meanwhile, of course, retired Dr. Fauci still making the cable news rounds to tout the safety of the vaccines. Let's watch. feeling is that I believe certainly those who are vulnerable, the elderly and those with underlying condition. But I believe we should give the choice to people who are not in the high risk groups to have the vaccine available for them. Because again, we have experience with this type of vaccine in billions of people. It's a safe vaccine. Of course, with the mRNA, there's a very, very, very low risk, particularly in young men of getting a myocarditis. But if you look at the risk of myocarditis from COVID itself is greater than the risk of the vaccine. Okay. And, and so. But see, that are, I don't understand that talking point because, um, sure, the risk of, even for the, for the most at risk group, it, it's true that the risk of COVID uh, inducing myocarditis is, is more than the vaccine, even for the, for the group that's most at risk from the vaccine. But. You can get the vaccine and still get COVID. The vaccine it does not prevent you from getting COVID. It, we, we will tout its benefits in reducing severe disease and the risk of death among the very vulnerable, especially, including the immunocompromised and the elderly. But it's not, it's not really the way Fauci and others posit there. It's like a one or the other. But it's not no, a one or the no, other because you can get them both. If you get COVID, not only do you have the risk of myocarditis, you have the risk of being hospitalized or dying. Right. If you get the vaccine, you have just the risk of myocarditis. That's the cost-benefit analysis he's trying to point but, out. So if either way you're going to get myocarditis, no. you're, you're, you're likely to get myocarditis, or there's the same possibility or slightly more of a possibility of getting myocarditis from getting vaccinated. The, the, the myocarditis risk from COVID is just, is just out there to be encountered, whereas... Right, you don't as, have control is, over that. as is the risk of dying or being hospitalized from COVID. So if you are wanting to protect yourself against the possibility of being hospitalized from contracting COVID, but you're worried about myocarditis, basically it's a toss-up for you, and you can go ahead and get the vaccine, and you'll get the protection we, from the we, hospitalization. We can move on this, from this, but let me just say what I'm saying one more time. You will face the... the, the it's a choice to face the, the, the very low, admittedly, low risk of myocarditis from the vaccine is something you choose. With, but you can, so if you don't get vaccinated, you don't face the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine. You will face the risk of myocarditis if and when you get COVID. If you get vaccinated, you're facing the risk of myocarditis from the vaccine, which is low, but you're facing it, plus the risk of getting myocarditis from COVID because the vaccine isn't going to stop you from getting COVID. Right. But you don't have saying. the risk of being hospitalized. Right. But they shouldn't bring up the, the well, there's also a risk of myocarditis from COVID because that, that's not an argument for well, it, the vaccine. No, it's an argument against people who think that they're going to be able to avoid myocarditis one way or the other. I, right. I don't think that's, well, I don't think that's what Fauci's trying to argue. It, it seemed like it to me. It seemed like he said exactly what you've been saying for the last year or so about how people who are in lower risk categories can make their own cost-benefit, the vaccine should be made available to them if they want to go ahead and take it. But if they're in a low-risk category, they don't necessarily need to take it, given the risk of myocarditis. It sounded to me like he said exactly what people have been wanting him to say this whole time. And I understand that people are frustrated that it's too little too late. But is there an, any acknowledgement that he seems to be reflecting what the science has borne out over the years? 
and why it was that you were and so many others were opposed to mandates. He seems to be, he gave statements, I don't know if we, I can't remember now if we included him in this clip, but he, I think in the same interview, said that he thinks that mandates are gone and that it's good and that they're not going to come back, again, because of these reasons, that the vaccine is not a sterilizing vaccine, that people can make their own cost-benefit analysis, especially for people in low-risk groups that are unlikely to be hospitalized in the first place. Isn't that... Isn't that what everybody wanted out of him? Yeah, th that's all good. <laughs> Again, I'm just saying it, it sounded to me like he was saying because the risk of, I mean, I, we don't need to, you know, obsess over this, but because the risk of myocarditis of the vaccine is lower, that's a reason to get the vaccine when it's not an either or because the vaccine doesn't stop you from getting COVID even if it has these other benefits. I thought that's what he was saying there. Maybe I'm misinterpreting. I've certainly well, what about all the other things he said? How yeah, did, that's what great. did you that's think good. about and his I'm, I'm glad to hear that from him. Look, and I'm glad the FDA approved this. I absolutely support the FDA and the CDC making it easier for you to choose to decide whether you want to get the vaccine to tell you what it thinks the benefits are and then to leave it up to you. I don't, I don't want the FDA to, to gatekeep whether people have access to this. Um, now, I, w I was looking um, at—so uh, it's targeted at this XBB15 variant, which actually is not the dominant strain anymore. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it was at the—you know, they're trying to—it takes so many months to get it ready and approved. They think the strain that is dominant right now is still—is related enough that it will have a, a, some protective effect. Obviously, that's—we don't know that for sure, but they have some reason to think that, so we'll see. Look, again, I think it's up to people, and it— it always should have been up to people, but especially now, we're moving into the, you know, get it if you think that's best given your health profile or when you've had COVID less, uh, last. Um, look, I believe in full disclosure. I probably will get it when it's available. Um, I'm, I, uh, I, I don't, I'm not very concerned about the risks of the vaccine given my age and health profile. Uh, I'm not really concerned about the risk of COVID either, but I'm susceptible to respiratory illnesses. So I would rather, um, even if, if it doesn't end up helping me at all, so be it. I'm not really worried about the downside. So that's my calculation. If yours is different, that's totally fine with you. And uh, it should just be left to people. Yeah, I do wonder in the void um, that kind of mandates and a more affirmative COVID policy has left behind, if people are going to find themselves clamoring for more protection and in terms of interventions that will help protect themselves, start clamoring for the government to intervene and impose and provide the air quality standards that were supposed to be provided with the government allotments as part of the COVID programs in schools and the like. If they're going to be clamoring for tests and masks and things once it's clear that the government has stepped all the way away from this, you know, I wonder if we're going to end up in a place where there seemed to be some criticism um, from some of the people we quoted in the segment of uh, the government funding the manufacture of these vaccines in the first place, which I, I my critique of the pharmaceutical industry is a little bit different than that. But, you know, do we want to end up in a place where they don't actually manufacture enough vaccines to be on standby in case we do have another surge and a real pandemic issue and we end up in the place we were with, with monkeypox, where there had been a a decision uh, not to keep the vaccines on store when they expired, not to re-up them because it cost a couple right. million dollars. And as a consequence, there was this real risk that this new disease was going to be able to spread in a way that was completely preventable. Or like we saw with some of the manufacturing issues with baby food, the supply chain issues that we saw all over the place with respect to COVID, have we learned the lesson that it's good to have 
stores of some of this stuff just in case? Or is the attitude that this is a enriching a government, enriching a private industry going to be so strong that people are arguing against even doing additional research uh, or trying to uh, keep provisions on hand in case things get worse? I, I'm curious to see how this is going to play out and if anything pivots as the government takes a smaller and smaller role in protecting people against COVID. We shall see. Well, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, California Representative Rokana will be back here with us. We'll also, of course, be bringing you all the other important news of the day. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. See you soon.